the Wild Moot Corps competition. I just wanted to welcome everyone tonight to the 90th annual William Minor Lyle Moot Court competition. Um, this competition has a really deep history and it boasts a lot of successful winners such as Ted Kennedy. I also wanted to take this moment to introduce and recognize the competitors here tonight. Um, tonight, Catherine Collins and Chris McComber will be arguing for the appellant while Kendall Burchard and Scott Herman Heath will be arguing for the appellee. Um, these competitors have come a long way to be with us here tonight. Um, their journey started last fall where they argued in a pool of 50 competitors um, competing individually. And then in the past spring semester, they actually competed twice as pairs, once in the quarterfinals where they argued together um, in a tournament style competition, and then again in the semifinals where they argued in a panel in front of three district court judges. I also wanted to take a moment and recognize and thank the judges for being here with us tonight. Um, tonight we'll be hearing from Judge Moore from the Sixth Circuit, Judge Diaz from the Fourth Circuit, and our very own Vice Dean Kendrick. Um, tonight, Judge Bebas from the Third Circuit was supposed to be with us, but unfortunately his plane was canceled, so he can't be here tonight. Um, I also wanted to recognize two faculty. While Lyle Moot Court is a completely student-run competition, without these two faculty members, we would not be here today. So I wanted to take a moment to recognize Professor Ware, she's in here somewhere, um, and also, yes, she's right there, um, and also Ruth Payne. I also wanted to especially recognize two board members tonight. I wanted to recognize Amanda Lineberry, who is our president, and she's put in a lot of dedication and hard work into this competition specifically, and in all the competitions we run throughout this whole year. And finally, I wanted to recognize Derek Keaton. Um, he's the problem writer for tonight, and he's put in a lot of work and dedication into this competition as well, and you'll hear from him shortly about the problem. Finally, I just wanted to recommend that, and also remind everyone to turn off their electronics, um, and I hope everyone enjoys the argument. Thank you. Hello, everyone. I'm Derek Keaton, 3-0 here at the law school. Um, as Annie said, I was able to write this final problem that these competitors greatly briefed and are prepared to argue. Uh, so in our hypothetical case, a detective coerced um, incriminating statements against appellant James Herrick. After the incriminating coerced nature of these statements was revealed at a pretrial hearing, the charges against Herrick were dropped. Herrick subsequently filed a Section 1983 lawsuit against the detective claiming that the use of these statements to charge him, arraign him, and set bail were in violation of his Fifth Amendment rights. Today, uh, our competitors will address two lively legal issues. Um, the first one being at what point uh, in a criminal case does the Fifth Amendment can be violated. Uh, the second issue is for purposes of qualified immunity against the Section 1983 lawsuit, at what point is the law clearly established in terms of the clearly established prong? Is it referring to the officer's conduct must be clearly established or the law around the constitutional violation itself must be clearly established? I hope you enjoy the arguments today. Thank you.
All rise. Oyez, oyez, oyez. The United States Court of Appeals of the 14th Circuit is now in session. All ye with business before the court draw near, and ye shall be heard. God save the United States of America and this honorable court. seated. Would counsel for the appellant please proceed. Madam Chief Judge, may it please the court. My name is Chris Maycumber. With my partner, Catherine Collins, we represent the appellant, James Herrick, in this matter. We are specifically asking this court to reverse the lower district court of Lyle in full. I will be discussing why the phrase criminal case in the Fifth Amendment covers preliminary hearings to include the exact probable cause hearing at issue here. Then my partner will be discussing why Detective Botch's conduct was governed by law that was clearly established at the time of his conduct and therefore cannot claim qualified immunity. Supreme Court precedent already informs this court that the phrase criminal case reaches beyond the peer trial phase. The logic of those decisions applies here because to allow incriminating evidence into preliminary hearings both circumvents their purpose and defies logic at its face. How can we say there is no criminal case here when appellate moved through after the initiation of formal judicial criminal proceedings. But so, where, where, is, where is the incrimination in that process up until the trial? Your Honor, the entirety of the preliminary hearings is about getting to that adjudication, getting to I understand the, that, but, but it's not, not directly linked to someone making an incriminating statement that's going to inflict penalty or punishment on them, at least not directly. Is that right? Well, correct, Your Honor, but two responses. First, preliminary hearings by their nature, if you consider it the first of three phases of the criminal case, preliminary hearings are about advancing the case forward, testing the government for probable cause and things of that nature. And so the adjudication element is not actually how we should be defining criminal case, Your Honor. We have a, a different limiting principle for a criminal case maybe. But it's a right against self-incrimination, right? So where's the incrimination in all of those uh, pretrial proceedings? Your Honor, it would be used against our client in that sense, to continue to hold him, to continue to deprive his liberty after, um, after the bail proceedings, for example. Uh, but are you looking at other things than the probable cause hearing? You're looking at earlier events, not the probable cause hearing itself, right? No, Your Honor, we are speaking specifically of the only formal hearing mentioned in the record. That is on the 14th, I believe, in record uh, page 6. And that preliminary hearing is where we believe the violation occurred. Because we believe criminal cases include preliminary hearings, Your Honor. But the violation was to use the statement, even though he was then not, there were no further proceedings, and that proceeding was not resolved against him. It was resolved in his favor. Correct, Your Honor. We believe using against him in a criminal case is where the violation occurred. Yes, Your Honor. Used against him in the sense that it was his words were used against him to check for probable cause in that instance to see if they would qualify for suppression. But it was found example. that there wasn't probable cause. Correct, Your Honor. And there, we believe that criminal case carries with it no requirement that there be a penalty on the person. We just see that criminal case covers preliminary hearings because it's about advancing the judicial process. 
most notably in Chavez, this, this distinction isn't present there either. The court was not concerned with should criminal case be measured by the actual penalties or the adjudication. Uh, and most notably in Inred Galt, for example, it's not about the type of proceedings, it's about if they could be used against them. Chavez, the Chavez didn't definitively answer this question in your favor, did it? Uh, no, Your Honor. Specifically, Chavez has actually left the door open. Chavez specifically passed on the opportunity to define when a criminal case begins. But we recommend that this court read Chavez in light of three very important cases before it, Mitchell, Hubble, and McMahon. Mitchell stands for the proposition <clears throat> that the sentencing phase, which is post-trial, self-incriminating evidence may not be introduced at that phase. And so that allows the opportunity to review criminal cases something as more than just a trial phase itself. Writing for the majority in Mitchell, Justice Kennedy concluded that it defies logic for a defendant to go from the plea bargaining phase, skip a criminal case entirely, end a sentencing and have a conviction, and yet there be no criminal case. That same logic applies here. It defies logic to see that Appellant Herrick went through several phases after the initiation of formal judicial proceedings and claimed there is no case. So when so, do you contend the criminal case begins? Your Honor, our line is this, the formal initiation of judicial criminal legal proceedings. Now, unfortunately, it has to be a little vague, and I apologize, if only because of the state level. So an arrest wouldn't count? I'm sorry, Your Honor? An arrest would not count? Absolutely not, Your Honor. An arrest by itself would not count, and we feel it's foreclosed by Chavez, for example. However... What, what about grand jury proceedings? Your Honor, there, there are actually two schools of thought about grand jury, and I'm happy to address both of them. The first is that the grand jury is actually already included in criminal case, and that is grounded in Councilman versus Hitchcock, where the Supreme Court explicitly called grand juries part and parcel of the criminal case. To be clear, Appellee is correct to point out Calandra, which stands for the proposition that a criminal defendant may not collaterally attack a true bill from a grand jury that should not be conflated with an unsolved constitutional question. May self-incriminating evidence be part of the prosecutor's grand jury case in chief? That is still yet unsolved. And that was a problem isn't for there, Isn't there a U.S. Supreme Court case that would suggest that um, self-incriminating statements can be used at the grand jury? Your Honor, I believe this is pulling an inference from Calandra, which said that the, <clears throat> the true bill may not be collaterally attacked. And that goes into a rationale, Ben, about when we want criminal defendants to actually be able to attack the evidence. And the final conclusion from cases like Costello and Holt is that it should be during the judicial proceedings, again, in front of our line, formal judicial proceedings. But, but, that's but isn't the, the probable cause hearing akin to the grand jury proceeding? so that you should have the same rule. So under Calandra, if you can't, as the defendant, you can't attack the use of self-incriminating statements in front of the grand jury, you shouldn't be able to do so in a probable cause hearing? So, Your Honor, that gets to the second school of thought about grand juries. So the, the, the first one I alluded to is an open constitutional question, which this court may not want to go down. The second one might say, we view grand juries as something not part of the criminal case, but we should be treating them similarly. I understand the, the, that to be the point of the question. However, just because probable cause hearings and grand juries get to the same end does not mean they should be governed by the same means. There are plenty of on-the-ground distinctions between grand juries and probable cause hearings that we believe distinguish them. I would like to run through a couple of them now. Most imperatively, grand juries are secret bodies of laypersons. And in some jurisdictions, a prosecutor is not even the one to ask all the questions. It's direct community-to-community -community conversation between a witness and the laypersons. They are not expected nor required to know the rules of evidence or the Constitution. Compare that to a probable cause hearing where a judge, she is very likely to know and should know the rules of evidence and constitutional proceedings that are going to govern uh, how evidence is to be admitted. Additionally, it is a public setting, not a private setting. 
Most telling of all is United but, States but is versus it, Williams. But is it the case that at a preliminary hearing that the rules of evidence and all, the, all those things you just talked about actually apply? Would they apply? Some of them are relaxed, Your Honor. That's absolutely true. Right. Constitutional provisions even less so. But the, the, the core point is that grand juries are treated like a black box, historically distinct at common law and our tradition as well, from distinct from the judicial process. This is reflected in the United States versus Williams, Your Honor, which noted that grand juries are actually an independent body away from the judiciary. So it does, in fact, make sense to treat them as separate. They look different. They act differently. They deserve to be treated differently. Again, their ends may be the same, but the means are different so to those ends. Counsel, just to be clear, and hi, I've had a promotion since this morning, so <laughs> yeah, good to see you. Um, so, but you can hear our concern, which is that this principle that you're setting forth needs some sort of limit to it. So um, to mention Justice Souter's opinion in Chavez, he says, we need to have a line, there has to be a limiting principle. And I heard you say at the beginning, it sounded as though you were going to say that uh, the, the line starts with the initiation of proceedings, and yet now you seem to be saying the grand jury might be on one side of that, preliminary hearing is on the other. I'm not, I'm not hearing a clear limiting principle here. So are grand juries with the principle that you're deciding here or outside of it? Where's the limiting principle? Your Honor, the reason why I cannot give you a clear answer is because of the gap in the first issue I mentioned. Now, if this court wants to, they can proceed without having to solve the constitutional question, and we can firmly say that grand juries are outside of the criminal case, notwithstanding councilman. Maybe councilman isn't is a dicta on that matter and not pure doctrine. And if that's the case, if this court reads councilman to say criminal cases don't include grand jury, it's the second conversation that we just had. Grand juries are distinguished based on how they functionally run, how they factually run, uh, compared to the probable cause hearings. And that's why, Your Honor, while the second option, both options fit within the rule as we see it, Your Honor. Either they're in criminal cases under councilman, or they're not under case of the councilman, but either way, our line is still formal judicial proceedings and the initiation of them, Your Honor. So that, that's the line, just to reiterate. Um, and unfortunately, the Supreme Court has not answered the key question about self-incriminating evidence use within grand juries, and that's why I cannot, I'm just trying to give the court both options, essentially, Your Honor. The other so way- So the district court in this case seemed to suggest that the, to the extent the plurality opinion in Chavez had anything <laughs> to say about informing this issue that it suggested strongly that this was, in fact, the right of self-incrimination was, in fact, a trial right, not something to be extended beyond the trial. What, what's wrong with that analysis? I believe, Your Honor, uh, Judge Diaz, you're referring to, to Verdugo and its references in Chavez. The issue with Verdugo is twofold. First and foremost, it is dicta. It is a Fourth Amendment case, and Justice Kennedy and Chavez realized the same. And so it should not and does not have doctrinal weight for defining criminal case, or particularly for the Fifth Amendment. Now, there is something to be said about dicta still being influential for lower courts. The issue with that premise, however, is that when we look at Verdugo and its progeny, that cases that follow, it is clearly undercut. So for example, Mitchell, as I have said, applies, the principle for Mitchell is that in the sentencing phase, uh, in the uh, sentencing phase is covered within the phrase criminal case. And if that was true, But it that's post-trial, so you really need to get a pre-trial case. Correct, Your Honor, and I was distinguishing why, why Verdugo, uh, if Verdugo has any weight to whatsoever, Mitchell would have come out the second way. Additionally, Hubble would not have come out the same way. Hubble, the Supreme Court, had the exact opportunity to say a trial is a criminal case and they're the one and the same. In fact, Hubble passed on that very conservative, very narrow view of criminal case. Now, the reason why it extends into preliminary hearings, Your Honor, uh, can be made clear with analogy to the Sixth Amendment, for example. So the Sixth Amendment doctrine teaches us that it applies to wherever critical stages are, including preliminary hearings. Councilman versus Hitchcock. In, in Councilman versus Hitchcock, the Supreme Court defined the phrase criminal case as a broader version of criminal prosecution, the language in the Sixth Amendment. 
So the Supreme Court has instructed lower courts to read the Fifth Amendment as always attaching wherever the Sixth Amendment may attach. Applied here, the critical stage was on the 14th. And at that point, uh, the appellant could have had a right to counsel under the Sixth Amendment, which means where we know that the Fifth Amendment is read broader than the Sixth Amendment, because we know the Sixth Amendment could have applied the preliminary hearing, therefore the Fifth Amendment does as well. And Your Honor, that is the logic we believe holds for why uh, the same type of logic applied in Mitchell also applies in preliminary hearings as well, Your Honor. Was there a bail hearing here? There was a bail hearing, Your Honor. The record does not reflect the exact date. It was the same day as arraignment. The two dates we have are the fourth for the, uh, the issuance of the arrest warrant, but and also the only formal preliminary hearing listed in the record is on the 14th. So would your position be that the bail hearing uh, would be um, within this Fifth Amendment protection as well? While the Supreme Court has not commented on bail hearings in relation to criminal cases, based on the line, uh, we believe this court only needs to say the preliminary hearing on the 14th is where the criminal case commenced. Um, additionally, we are positive but, but that is the only adversarial hearing, Your Honor. Your brief seems to be morphing from the question that this court granted, which was use at a probable cause hearing, and you're using the word preliminary hearing in your brief. Why have you flipped the terminology? Your Honor, that was just to catch the uh, various amounts and types of proceedings at play in this issue. To be clear, we are only asking this court to hold that the probable cause hearing on the 14th is covered by the phrase criminal case. Now, the reason why the brief talks about it in the more broad sense with the phrase preliminary hearings is to reflect uh, two understandings. One, we do not have the criminal rules of law in front of us. So we could not peg exactly how many more types of process were involved at the criminal procedure level, and also the fact that states handled this very differently. So there's no clean state analogy for what this looks like. This is all to say, when we look at how other circuits have handled it, they have handled probable cause hearings, uh, suppression hearings, bail hearings, and a litany of other types of So that brings hearings. up a different problem. You say there's no clean, clear analogy. Different states handle things differently. But we, I suppose, are trying to establish some level of consistency and that identifying the right of self-incrimination as applying at trial would seem to be consistent across the board regardless of the different nuances and what states do at the preliminary uh, trial proceedings. That may be true, Your Honor, but it would be severely undercutting the actual design of the Fifth Amendment for two reasons. First, if it was to be just a trial right, as the Seventh Amendment says trial, so would the Fifth Amendment. And so it seems odd to limit the Fifth Amendment by reading the word trial when the founders clearly knew they could have put it in themselves. The second issue, Your Honor, is that it would severely hamper essentially how every case functions. 95% of all cases plea out. And so without any coverage on that front end, it absolutely undermines criminal defendants across the system. And so while it might be easy and a clean line to say just trial and that's it, Criminal case by the text of the amendment, the intent of the amendment, and the logic for preceding Supreme Court cases mean that preliminary hearings have to be covered as well. Given that there was suppression of the statement, how was the Fifth Amendment right violated? Uh, Your Honor, I see my time is up. May I have a brief moment yes. to respond? Um, Your Honor, the Fifth Amendment does not turn on the type of proceedings, but ultimately turns, as Inouye Galt teaches this court, ultimately turns on what the goal and the proposition is. If the state is seeking to convict, which they were here, then that's all that matters for purposes of the Fifth Amendment, Your Honor. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank no further you. questions? Thank you. Madam Chief Judge, and may it please the court. 
My name is Kendall Burchard, and I, along with my co-counsel, Scott Harmon, represent the appellee, Detective Eugene Bouch. The Fifth Amendment's sole concern is to prevent individuals from being compelled to testify against themselves in situations that would lead to the infliction of criminal penalties. This court should affirm the district court's dismissal of James Herrick's suit because he has failed to plausibly allege his Fifth Amendment rights were violated in two ways. First, the right against self-incrimination cannot be violated until trial. And second, even if the right against self-incrimination can be violated before trial, it cannot be violated at a pre-arrest probable cause hearing. Your Honor, turning to my first point. You don't think spending a weekend in jail is a stiff penalty? Your Honor, no. It is de minimis, and as the Supreme Court. You think Court, it's de minimis? As the Supreme Court recognized in McLaughlin, as long as probable cause hearings are afforded within 48 hours, that is considered to be a reasonable amount of time for an individual to be held by the state. And although it is regrettable that that occurred, it is certainly not a penalty. Well, you're talking in terms of penalties. That seems like a pretty stiff penalty to me. And you want to take the trial right in isolation without looking at what happened up to that moment of trial. And as your opponent pointed out, most cases don't end up in a trial. Ninety-plus percent of the cases he indicated end up in a plea bargain. So how are we supposed to deal with that reality? So, Your Honor, there are multiple ways to approach that. In particular, I think it's important to focus on critical stages. So at a pre-arrest probable cause hearing, that doesn't rise to the level of a critical stage at which counsel must be afforded because an individual's defense on the merits would be impeded if counsel were not present. But you're, uh, you're using critical stage there in the Sixth Amendment way, correct? And we're dealing with the Fifth Amendment situation and the Fifth Amendment says in criminal cases, whereas the Sixth Amendment is criminal proceedings. Isn't there a difference there? So to your Honor's point, and as our friends on the other side have suggested, in a criminal case was added shortly before ratification of the amendment. And as a result, the reasoning for doing so was lost to history, although leading historians have suggested that it was designed as a limiting principle. Why it differs from the Sixth Amendment and the inclusion of trial is unclear, but the use of witness within the Fifth Amendment seems to invoke a particular trial right, in particular because the use of witness throughout the Constitution seems to invoke only uh, the use at trial. In but aren't there witnesses at a preliminary hearing? So, Your Honor, it's important to be very precise about the hearing at issue here. And as Your Honor pointed out earlier, this the question certified for appeal exclusively deals with pre-arrest probable cause hearings. So this is not necessarily a preliminary hearing. It's a pre-arrest probable cause hearing. And, and are there witnesses at a pre-arrest probable cause hearing? There can be. Um, in this particular instance, it doesn't appear as though there were. According to the record, it was um, simply Detective Bouch offering his thoughts and... Um, his thoughts having to do with the self-incriminating statements? With the, the answers that he solicited made. from Mr. Herrick, yes. Um, but those answers are within the scope of the state's prerogative to compel the to compel their employees to answer questions specifically, directly, and narrowly pertaining to their employment, as the Supreme Court has but recognized. Not, but not for purposes of a criminal prosecution. Yes, Your Honor, and that is when Garrity comes in. Garrity does provide a self-executing privilege for um, state employees who are compelled to answer questions, and as um, the record indicates, Garrity was in full force here and did as it needed to do and excluded those statements from a criminal proceeding and a criminal trial but the pre-arrest probable cause hearing falls outside of that. So, 
Counsel, the district court characterized the proceeding below as a preliminary hearing, and I take parts of what the opinion, the district court opinion, is saying to be speaking more broadly to the question of whether uh, there's ever a violation when we're talking about a preliminary hearing. Um, so given that this case is now on our doorstep and we have this opinion that we have to address, do you think there are ever any proceedings that could be characterized as preliminary hearings where this right is in play? Yes, Your Honor. Um, and again, going back to the idea of critical stages and when those hit. Um, particularly, I was referencing the critical stages as used in Gerstein and um, deciding when the full gamut of adversarial rights are available to criminal defendants. And those are applicable when d a defense on the merits would be impeded. And that is not present at a pre-arrest probable cause hearing, in particular because they're non-adversarial proceedings. You say and at a pre-arrest probable cause hearing. Was this a pre-arrest? It was, Your Honor, yes. So uh, Mr. Herrick had yet to be arrested. This hearing was conducted prior to that, and that served as probable cause to arrest him. And wasn't there a bail hearing involved in this case as well? There was, Your Honor. Was there, that after then? Yes, there was later an arraignment and a bail hearing, although that was in a separate hearing, and that was not certified for appeal for today. So would the privilege against self-incrimination apply at the bail hearing, under your view? Potentially, Your Honor. If the right against self-incrimination is found to be applicable before trial, a bail hearing presents a far closer case because it is an adversarial proceeding. But a pre-arrest probable cause hearing is not adversarial because it's limited to the government pro-offering evidence against an individual used to then initiate a criminal case. So just to be clear, you're not using the term trial to mean trial. On your view, would post-trial proceedings also include this right? Yes, Your Honor. And, and plea bargaining also would include this right? Plea bargaining has been recognized as a critical stage of the prosecution, and so we hold with the Supreme Court in that regard. In particular, what turns on the right against self-incrimination is the potential for the infliction of penalties, and that can occur at trial, and that can also include sentencing phases, as the Supreme Court recognized in United States versus Mitchell. It's important, though, to recognize that United States versus Mitchell and United States versus Hubble both dealt with the extent of the privilege of the Fifth Amendment. And with the right against self-incrimination is distinct from the privilege within the Fifth Amendment. And so understanding that, um, the Supreme Court has recognized that the privilege provides an opportunity to guard against being compelled to furnish evidence against oneself, but the violation of the right can only occur when criminal penalties can be inflicted. Your Honors, this is also supported by the history of the Fifth Amendment. As our friends on the other side suggested in Ferguson versus Georgia, um, criminal defendants were found to be incompetent as witnesses in common law, but that was because they were expected to be their own advocates and they were not allowed access to outside counsel. As a result, they could not testify in their own case, they could not furnish evidence in their own case, and so it shows and follows that the right against self-incrimination could only be violated at trial. Furthermore, um, to elaborate a bit on the points this court was curious about in my friends on the other side's argument about probable cause determinations and grand jury proceedings, those two are extremely, extremely similar in their purpose and in their execution. In their purpose, they are both designed to prevent um, needless, 
needless investigation into the private lives of individuals while also recognizing that the state needs to be able to enforce the laws and to act in the community's own protection. They are non-adversarial non proceedings and they are also designed to um, allow the government to convince either a neutral magistrate or the grand jurors that a crime has been or is being committed. Both of them abide by probable cause So standard. is your test really focusing then on whether there's an adversarial proceeding as opposed to what you call a non-adversarial proceeding? That's one way of looking at it, and at least with the adversarial proceedings, it offers a bit of a closer fit to when a critical stage in a particular hearing would occur. What case would you say best supports your idea that it should depend on whether it's an adversarial versus non-adversarial? Gerstein, Your Honor. So Gerstein, at least, really focuses on when the rights of criminal defendants come into play and when the right of confrontation, the right of cross-examination, and the right of compulsory process is in full effect. And they root that determination in adversarial proceedings. So, Your Honors, to elaborate further on just how closely analogous probable cause hearings are to grand jury proceedings, the um, probable cause standard is the same, and as a result, both permit a relaxed use of evidentiary rules and procedural safeguards throughout. Judges and jurors can contemplate otherwise inadmissible hearsay statements. They can consider evidence that would later be suppressed at a trial because it was acquired in violation of the Fourth Amendment. And they can take each of these things into totality as they are making their assessment about whether uh, probable cause exists to arrest an individual. Or As I understand it, in most bail proceedings, the rules of evidence are also relaxed. So what is it about bail proceedings that you suggest might require a different analysis? So to that point, really the bail hearings present more of an adversarial opportunity because um, the individual will be there, the individual's counsel will be there, and there are determinations by the court, at least, of the individual's character and how likely they are to appear at their eventual court date. And so that seems to feel a little bit more like a trial, um, while a pre-arrest probable cause hearing certainly does not, because the individual is not there and it's only the government offering evidence at that point. Counsel, just so I can clarify, so you're saying that this right does attach at a bail hearing? Your Honor, it could. Um, so, our contention. So just to be clear, the, the uh, plaintiff here alleges that the defendant violated his Fifth Amendment rights by compelling statements that were used in a criminal case against him specifically to bring charges at arraignment and to set bail. So you think there was a violation here to the extent that these statements were used at the bail hearing? No, Your Honor, because of the question that was certified for appeal. At least as um, the record indicates, James Herrick has rooted the violation in the introduction of his statements at a probable cause determination. And I, that pre-arrest probable cause determination does not rise to the you're level. You're saying it's pre-arrest, but I'm looking at the district court's opinion on page three, which maybe I'm misunderstanding it, but I think the district court says that on April 3rd, formal charges were filed and arrest warrant was issued. Then at arraignment, he pled not guilty and bail was set. He was released. On the next, on April 6th, he's fired. Then it says on April 14th, a preliminary hearing was held. Am I misunderstanding that, that the probable cause hearing was after formal charges were filed, the arrest warrant, he pled not guilty, the bail was set? Your Honor, the probable cause hearing did occur prior to um, his where, arrest. Where is that in the record? If you read up just slightly on the record, it should indicate that. Yeah, I, 
apologies, Your Honor. I don't have okay. the record in front of me. I do believe Does, it appears Is that an important feature as to whether the probable cause hearing was held before he was arrested or after he was arrested? At least on the facts presented before this court today, yes, it does. Because again, it, it looks less and less like a trial and less and less as though the full gamut of, advers of adversarial protections would extend to Mr. Herrick at this point, including the right against self-incrimination. So my understanding of the facts was reading the record. On April 14th, the preliminary hearing was held his attorney successfully argued for suppression. After his statements were suppressed, the prosecutor dropped the charges against him. That seems to be the history that's specified by the district court. No, Your Honor. The probable cause determination did, in fact, occur before he was arrested. The probable cause determination led to his arrest. Um, the prosecutor sought a probable cause determination prior to the arrest in order to make the arrest. But, Your Honors, with each of these um, similarities between probable cause hearings and grand jury proceedings, as Your Honors mentioned in the first argument, grand jury proceedings can found valid um, indictments upon compelled statements. And as a result, it would be logically inconsistent to find that a probable cause hearing would um, would entice some sort of Fifth Amendment violation while a grand jury proceeding would not. So, Your Honors, if there are no further questions for these reasons, Appellee respectfully requests that this court affirm the district court's finding that James Herrick did not, um, did not allege that his Fifth Amendment rights were violated. Thank you. Madam Chief Judge, and may it please the court. My name is Katherine Collins, and I'm representing the appellant, James Herrick. Qualified immunity cannot be extended to appellee Botch in these circumstances because the law governing his conduct was clearly established at the time that he acted. It is clear under Garrity v. New Jersey that the use of statements compelled under a threat of termination from public office is in violation of an individual's right against self-incrimination when later used in criminal proceedings. The scope of the clearly established law inquiry focuses unwaveringly on officer's conduct. And because that was clearly established, whether or not use in a criminal case extends to the formal pretrial criminal judicial proceedings uh, that occurred in this case is irrelevant to that analysis. It would be irrelevant, as the Supreme Court has described the clearly established law inquiry with it, that link to officer conduct always present. It would be irrelevant to the underlying purposes of qualified immunity. And perhaps most importantly, it would be irrelevant to any common law historical privilege or defense which must ground the scope of qualified immunity that this court will extend. Just last uh, term in Zalar v. Abazi, Justice Thomas wrote separately to express his growing concern with courts distancing themselves from the historical justifications for common law um, immunities and privileges. Well, counsel, we don't, we don't look at an officer's conduct in a vacuum or in the abstract. We have to look at it in the context of the circumstances in which that conduct occurred and the consequences that flow from that conduct. And it's the consequences, I think, that where the problem lies, because if, in fact, we're only supposed to punish those who are the most plainly incompetent, how would it be appropriate to punish this officer given the uncertainty of the law with respect to the consequences of his conduct? 
Well, Your Honor, the uncertainty of the law as to whether or not a violation did occur here is not the type of uncertainty that it aims to protect because that clearly established law inquiry in qualified immunity is always focused um, on the officer's conduct and what an officer in his shoes would know. However, whether or not the violation occurred here is something that has no connection to how that officer acted. To be clear, an officer in Apelli Botch's shoes would have to be plainly incompetent or knowing violation of the law to not know that he was giving rise to the possibility of a constitutional violation. Indeed, no one Counsel, can- so as we heard from your um, colleague, you do think that there are some forms, there are some types of proceedings to which the Fifth Amendment right doesn't attach. So let's just imagine for a moment that we think the grand jury proceeding is one of those. Let's imagine that the defendant did exactly what the defendant did here, and the only um, result of that was that these self-incriminating statements were presented to a grand jury, and they didn't go any further, nothing else happened. Would you say that the defendant had qualified immunity in that type of situation or not? Well, because the qualified immunity analysis is essentially a two-step analysis, did a violation occur, and then was the law governing the officer's conduct clearly established? No, if I, there, well, there would be qualified immunity because there would be no violation. So just to be clear, your position is not, this is wrongful conduct, period, full stop, regardless of what happens afterwards. Your position is, this is wrongful conduct, this is, this is conduct for which qualified immunity is not warranted, only depending on what happens later with the information. Not quite, Your Honor. I would say that this is wrongful conduct period, and whether or not the violation ultimately occurs is a question of causation, which is severed from this clearly established law inquiry, because it is the officer's conduct which gives rise to his liability, and whether or not that violation ultimately occurs, as courts such as the Sixth Circuit in McKinley v. Mansfield said, that is essentially a question of standing, whether or not a violation occurs. But that doesn't mean that his conduct did not give rise to it. And to, to back it up one step, in a similar context, um, in uh, uh, Section 1983 liability for wrongful arrests, for instance, uh, officers have liability even if that rest, arrest required a warrant to go through a judge to occur. That is a causation question. And what ultimately happened there is something that is necessary to find a violation and therefore to find him liable. So under your, your view of things, if um if we have a violation, because you say the, the officer should have known that what he did violated the Fifth Amendment, but we have a plainly incompetent district attorney who doesn't recognize a violation, that particular officer is subject to the vagaries of that incompetence, but another officer who has a DA who's on the ball and says, wait a minute, we can't use this evidence because what you did was in violation of a defendant's rights, he's off the hook, he's not liable, that the other officer is. Does yes, that make sense? Honor. That makes sense to you? Yes, Your Honor. Under Malley v. Briggs, that must be the consequence because in Malley v. Briggs, the court explicitly said there it was officers applying for a warrant for arrest without probable cause, and the fact that probable cause didn't exist was clearly established under the law. And the court said there that, of course, in an ideal world, no judge would have ever issued this warrant. The arrest would not occur. There would be no violation. But of course, we do not live in an ideal world. And the officer is not excused from the responsibility to know the law governing his conduct, even by intermediary negligence or any other sort, type of shortfalling which is required to make that violation come true. Isn't your position pretty much saying, though, that all officers who violate Garrity are subject to 1983 actions? No, Your Honor, because if they violate Garrity and, for instance, 
no violation does occur. No, no violation meaning what? No use in a criminal case does occur, then there is no 1983 liability because, simply put, there is no liability for an attempted constitutional violation. Even though the officer did exactly the same thing and his involvement ends when he gives the information to the prosecutor. Notwithstanding that, you reach that result? Yes, Your Honor. I think that that is the necessary result if we look to 1983 and the fact that common law tort principles apply to it. An officer is responsible for the reasonable and foreseeable consequences of his actions. And here the officer knew that what he did was unlawful. And whether or not there is uncertainty as to the violation ultimately occurring was outside of his scope of his control there. That sounds different from what you just said to her a moment ago, to the chief judge a moment ago. Because it sounds as though, on the one hand, you're saying whether this is a violation or not and whether, whether there's qualified immunity or not depends upon what happens downstream. But I took you just now to say it doesn't turn on what happens downstream. Does it turn on what happens downstream or not? Whether there is a violation turns on what happens downstream, necessarily, okay. because the police officer was not the one who admitted it here. And the officer still has liability in that sense. It turns on that, but the qualified immunity clearly established law inquiry just looks at the officer and what he would know is governing his conduct. And that's how the court has phrased it. But just, just to be clear, your, your position is that there's no constitutional violation in a case like that, yet this officer should know by clearly established law that he violated the Constitution? He should know by, based upon the clearly established law governing his conduct that what he was doing was unlawful and would be likely to cause a violation. And if indeed it did occur, then under those normal tort principles of him being responsible for the reasonable and foreseeable actions, if it did occur, then he is liable, yes. And that's how the court has described this clearly established law inquiry. For instance, in Saucier v. Katz, they described it the relevant and dispositive inquiry in determining whether or not a right is clearly established is whether or not an officer would know, an officer in his shoes would know that what he is doing is unlawful in the situation that he confronted. And I'm aware that there is this disconnect. In most cases, using the clearly established law inquiry, the violation doesn't require this chain of causation down the line. But that's just a general issue of the being responsible for your reasonable and foreseeable consequences. The violation that occurred down the line, whether or not there was legal uncertainty there, there wasn't as to this officer's conduct. And courts have held that, such as the Stute Court in the Ninth Circuit said that any uncertainty relating to this specific question, relating to Chavez, is irrelevant to the analysis because the officer's conduct was complete there. But don't, don't most of the courts of appeals hold that qualified immunity should apply in this context? No, Your Honor, I don't believe so. I believe that the only court that has addressed this rather peculiar question of the application of the clearly established law inquiry is the court below and the voked court. But both of those courts err in focusing on some Supreme Court language describing the clearly established law inquiry as whether or not the right was clearly established. And that is true, yet those courts all still consistently link it to the informative effect of giving notice to officers regarding their own conduct. And so, counsel, I'm concerned that your standard means that um, the qualified immunity standard is looking two directions at once. So it's asking first if there was a constitutional violation, but then it's asking second whether the officer should have known whether it was clearly established, not that there was a constitutional violation, because you're saying that's not what we're looking at, but whether his or her conduct had a tendency to create a constitutional violation or was wrongful in some other vaguer sense. And I'm concerned that that's, that means that the standard 
in two directions at once. I have another concern that if that's the case, that sounds new to me, and it's hard to imagine that we could say that this officer was operating under clearly established law. I think it is a bit complex in this unique circumstance because it is looking at a question of law which does not have bearing on the officer's conduct, and that's simply not the case. In most of these situations, the right is described in regard to the fact that officers are facing a practically unlimited possibility of certainties on the ground. So it's looking at how well is that right established? Would they know? Would they be able to apply it to their actions? But to take a step back and look at this very practically, what did the officer know when he acted? At the very best, any competent or following the law officer would know that he was taking an unconstitutionally impermissible statement under Garrity. He was handing it over to a prosecutor, presumably to be used for prosecution. If it reached trial, that would be a violation, and he would be liable under Section 1983. Indeed, under Mitchell, because it could not be used in sentencing, even if it reached a plea, he would be liable. The best case scenario, then, is that he is filing a charge, and it will be used possibly in a way that is in violation of the Fifth Amendment, but it will be thrown out by the court. And that is not the type of uncertainty as to the law that qualified immunity aims to protect. I, I hear what you're saying, but it seems like all of that would be true also if then it just happened that the only use of the statement was in a grand jury proceeding where people would conclude, where a court would conclude there was no violation. So the wrongfulness of the conduct is the same in both regards, but I hear you saying there'd be qualified immunity in one of those situations and not in the other. Well, no, there, there would be no, yes, kind of, because there would be no qualified immunity because there would not be a violation, right. not because there would not be clearly established law governing his conduct. In a similar circumstance, if he had done everything that he did and he had handed over to a prosecutor and they had not used it, then there would be no violation, and we wouldn't think that there's a problem with that in most of the circumstances in 1983. What if the officer, as I imagine most officers would know, uh, understands that most cases end, end up in plea bargains, you don't ever see a trial. And he decides, uh, when he's taking the statement, he recognizes that fact and says, well, I know that uh, it's more likely than not that this case is not ever going to see the light of day in a trial courtroom. I'm not exactly sure whether or not these statements can be used in a preliminary hearing or a bail hearing, as, 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 been, as has been argued thus far. The law is uncertain, uh, and therefore I'm free to proceed. What about that? Judge Diaz, I think that that is exactly the harm that would occur because I, I do believe that under Mitchell it would be quite But clear. is that a plainly incompetent officer? Yes, Your Honor, I do believe so because he knows that the law governing his conduct would already be possibly leading to liability. So if we look at what this clearly established law inquiry exists to do, it does not exist in abstract. It exists to inform his conduct and he's giving rise to liability. And the balance that is struck by providing qualified immunity in 1983 context is a balance between vindicating citizens' constitutional rights, and this court does have to find that a violation occurred to reach this step, but vindicating those rights and protecting, on the other hand, the vigorous execution of officers' official duties. Any legal uncertainty that exists here is outside the scope of his duties, and it, it doesn't seem very plausible to say that protecting uncertainty as to whether or not he could get someone convicted or just simply detained on the basis of a statement that could never be used against him in trial, that simply doesn't seem like the vigorous execution of his duties that this is aimed to protect. And indeed, even if this court did think that it were a sound policy judgment for some reason, under Tower, the court has said that there is no license to establish new immunities. 
This clearly established law inquiry sounds in the historical justification of the good faith inquiry. And now that's objective under Harlow and officers are imputed knowledge of the law governing his conduct. Because that was clear, qualified immunity cannot be offered here. Thank you. Thank you. Madam Chief Judge, and may it please the court, my name is Scott Harmon, and I am co-counsel for the appellee, Detective Eugene Bouch. Your Honors, reasonable officers, lawyers, and judges disagree about the self-incrimination clause's applicability to pre-arrest probable cause hearings. Accordingly, the district court correctly held that Detective Bouch was entitled to qualified immunity because James Herrick has not plausibly alleged a clearly established right was violated. This court should affirm for two reasons. First, there is no controlling precedent nor robust consensus among the circuits that the Fifth Amendment prohibits Detective Bouch's conduct. And second, James Herrick's submissions to this court cannot be reconciled with qualified immunities long-standing. So when this officer is taking this statement uh, uh, in violation of the Fifth Amendment, is he supposed to be looking at it in such a confined way as you suggest that is the possibility of it being limited in use uh, to pretrial proceedings alone and not trial? Your Honor, I think that what your question really gets to is what, has, what constitutes a clearly established right and what has to be clearly established. And so I think that what my friends are suggesting to the court today is that Garrity clearly establishes uh, that Detective Bouch's conduct was illegal. But Garrity doesn't use the words probable cause. It doesn't consider pretrial proceedings. In fact, in Garrity, uh, the statements had been offered at a trial. They'd been used to uh, convict the defendant. Excuse but me. But don't you agree that Garrity was violated by the officer here? I don't, Your Honor. I think that Garrity can only be violated in two instances. I think first and foremost, Garrity is violated when a statement is compelled and then used at a trial. I think Garrity can also be violated under Lefkowitz and Gardner when an individual is coerced to answer questions and they are forced to waive their privilege. Ab absent a waiver of the Fifth Amendment privilege, I don't believe that Garrity has been violated. There isn't a freestanding Garrity violation in this case because Mr. Herrick was never asked to waive his privilege, nor were his statements ever used against him uh, in, a, in, a, in a criminal trial. And so I think, to back up a moment, the question before the court is what really has to be clearly established? And I don't think that there's any way to read Anderson, Harlow, or Al-Kid to hold anything other than what has to be clearly established is the underlying right, the right that the plaintiff relies upon and claims is violated. And so here, Mr. Herrick has to plausibly allege that the right to be free from incriminating statements at a pre-arrest probable cause determination was clearly established on April 3rd, 2017, when those statements were used. Moreover, I don't think that you can read Al-Kid to suggest anything other than what constitutes a clearly established right is a right that is so clear that there can be no debate. Rights are, are, are clearly established when no reasonable officer could look at the conduct and conclude that it was lawful. Absent such a right, James Herrick's lawsuit should be dismissed because he has not plausibly alleged that my client can be held liable. Counsel. Isn't it true that some courts have interpreted Saussure to mean that the, what has to be clearly established is the law underlying the constitutional violation? Now, I understand your view is that Garrity wasn't violated here, and I just want to put that to the side. But isn't it true that you could have the position, and some courts have, that what has to be clearly established is the law underpinning the violation, not that there was a violation in and of itself? Respectfully, Your Honor, I would disagree with your characterization. I think that, that that is largely foreclosed by Anderson. If I can quote from Anderson, 
The court said, quote, it should not be surprising that our cases establish that the right the official is alleged to have been violated must be clearly established. And so I think what that suggests is that the right that the plaintiff claims is violated, the, the right that the first prong of qualified immunity is considering, has to have been clearly established. And here we have a four to four circuit split at best. We have four circuits on each side, four that have explicitly held that the, uh, the self-incrimination clause is only implicated at trial, and four that have held that it can be implicated at some pretrial proceedings. Now, I don't think that a reasonable officer would be plainly incompetent if they looked at a four to four circuit split and determined that the question was open. And Wilson versus Lane held quite I guess the problem here, though, is that the incompetence or not of the officer hinges on the, uh, on the actions of others beyond his control, right? Is that an appropriate? sort of uh, way to differentiate these cases? Well, Your Honor, I understand that that goes to the causation question. The causation question isn't before the court, and I understand that it may seem odd to, to hinge an officer's liability on the eventual actions of a prosecutor, but the Supreme Court has long since held that holding an officer liable for the eventual conduct of a prosecutor is entirely consistent with 1983. And so we're not contesting that that is a perfectly permissible way uh, to hold an officer liable. All so which, we are saying- which case is your best case for that principle? Your Honor, I apologize. I don't have a case for that principle, but I believe that it's been largely conceded by the parties and the district court held as much in footnote one uh, on page 11 of the record. Moreover, I would suggest that the four to four circuit split uh, does not entirely supports my, support my friend's uh, contention on the qualified immunity prong too. Uh, first and foremost, I would like to discuss vote, which held that the officers in vote were entitled to qualified immunity because the law was not clearly established. And so to be perfectly clear, unless my friends are prepared to suggest that vote clearly established rules on the national level, I don't believe that we can say that the law was clearly established in the 14th Circuit. Now, that's obviously not to say uh, that law can never be clearly established before uh, this circuit considers it. If there was an overwhelming uh, majority of circuit courts, that would be sufficient. If intervening law had changed such that a great majority of circuit precedent holding to the contrary was no longer good law, we would again not be here. But what we have in this case is a four to four circuit split with 16 courts on my client's side and four courts on my opponent's side. 16 courts, uh, six appellate courts and 10 district courts have explicitly held that the self-incrimination clause is implicated only at trial. And so my friends would have to suggest that a plainly incompetent officer, that, that an inc that an officer could regard 16 different federal judicial opinions and nonetheless conclude that something was unlawful. That is not what qualified immunity allows, and qualified immunity is not so easily swept away. I would also like to very briefly discuss my friend's heavy reliance on both Hagezi and Stute. I think that Hagezi- Before you do that, do you think that an officer looking uh, at this issue would actually get to the question of these splits, or should he be focused, he or she be focused on the immediate violation that occurs in taking the statement in violation of a Fifth Amendment right? Again, Your Honor, I'm not prepared that, that uh, there's a freestanding Fifth Amendment violation in this case, but even if, if, even if we take your premise as given, I think that uh, a reason, the question is not whether or not an officer, or excuse me, whether or not uh, Detective Bouch knew or did not know. The question is whether or not a reasonable officer could examine the facts on the ground, the law on the ground, in the situation he confronts, uh, and determine that the question is open. And if the question is open, then the officer remains entitled to qualified immunity. I guess I'm not sure that an officer in, in these shoes would actually think that far beyond the issue, the immediate issue as to whether or not what he's doing violates a particular individual's Fifth Amendment rights, not the necessarily consequences that flow from that at the preliminary hearing stage, the bail hearing, whatever you want to call it. But I think most officers would be focused on the immediate consequences of his or her 
actions. Your Honor, I understand that it may seem odd to predicate the entire analysis on whether or not a reasonable officer would conclude the question is open or, or, or whether or not the right is clearly established. But unfortunately, I, I believe it's largely the test that we have. And so I think that the question remains a fact-intensive but uh, consistently objective one. And so it's whether or not a reasonable officer could have concluded that this conduct was lawful. But I think what makes it odd in this case and goes beyond the, the regular oddness of, of the Saucier standard is just that your analysis seems to depend on luck, just on what downstream actors do with this potential violation. So the officer, you're essentially saying, go ahead and roll the dice and ask the question and coerce someone. Maybe someone down the line will, you know, decide to use it in a way that doesn't come back to haunt you. Go, go ahead and give it a try. Does that seem like the type of signal that qualified immunity is meant to be sending to officers? Well, Your Honor, I think what your point gets to is, is, is a few things. I think first and foremost, uh, the question in this case is simply whether or not Detective Bouch's conduct, A, constituted a violation, and my friends have, have already stated they root the violation at the probable cause hearing. And so they have to draw a connection between Detective Bouch's conduct and the clearly established right. Well, that's, we have a dispute about Garrity and what Garrity means, but leaving that aside, if, if we think that Garrity is broader than what you're saying, then this is clearly wrongful conduct on the part of the officer, but you're saying whether, whether there's qualified immunity or not turns on what other actors do with, with the um, information once it's been coerced from, <clears throat> from the plaintiff here. Your Honor, I suppose, again, that that is, that is a strange way to run a railroad. But at the same time, what I would suggest is that uh, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't think that Garrity, in this case, can clearly establish the rights for a few reasons. And, and I would like to give them in turn, if I could. I think, first and foremost, uh, if Garrity clearly establishes what my friends suggest it does, then the vote analysis is completely nonsensical. Because the vote court in no way believed that Garrity had been violated simply by taking the statements. Moreover, the Garrity court was not concerned with the, the strange application of, of forcing an officer to roll the dice. Now, officers are obviously going to be held liable uh, if they offer a statement to a prosecutor and then the prosecutor uses it in a constitutionally violative way. Now here, uh, I would suggest that if, if the... Uh, if Didn't if, that happen here? I don't believe so, Your Honor, because again, what we go back to is whether or not there's a violation and whether or not the violation was a clearly established violation. The court in Anderson, again, said that the unlawfulness of the action has to be plain on its face. And so my friends have focused a great deal of emphasis before the court today on the conduct word in that sentence. We would suggest that the operative word in the sentence is unlawful. The question is whether or not it was clearly unlawful to do this. The conduct analysis uh, is, remains important because conduct goes to whether or not a violation has occurred at all. But that does not go to the abstract legal question of whether or not a right was clearly established. Moreover, I would suggest that if this court finds the Stute uh, analysis persuasive, uh, it will have a, the court will have a hard time squaring it with, a numer with numerous Supreme Court precedents that we cite in our brief. I don't think that the Stute court can be regarded as persuasive on qualified immunity because it didn't cite seminal qualified immunity cases. It didn't cite Wilson. It didn't cite Anderson. These are vital qualified immunity cases, and the Stute court simply swept them aside. I could just understand a little bit the scope of your um contentions on clearly established. So your colleague said that um, there were Fifth Amendment rights uh, that would attach at certain types of preliminary hearings. And I understand your position is that though any type of preliminary hearing where that would be the case, where it would be adversarial, is not at issue here. But where do you think this right is clearly established within the 14th Circuit? 
Your Honor, I don't think that there's any dispute that if these statements had been used at trial, it would have that we would not be saying that the law wasn't clearly established. I don't think that if the statements had been used in a sentencing hearing, we would be disputing that in any way. Um, but I don't believe that a pre-arrest probable cause hearing is in any way clearly established, especially given the fact uh, that there's an open circuit split. And Ju Chief Justice Rehnquist in Wilson versus Lane said, as long as judges disagree, it's unfair to hold officers liable for resolving a difficult constitutional question. Do you think there are any preliminary hearings in which this is clearly established? Uh, Your Honor, I'm not entirely sure about the state of the law in bail hearings, but I would suggest that bail hearings may be an area where it's clearly established. But again, I'm not prepared to submit that to the court as, a, as, a, uh, as an affirmative statement. I'd like to step back for a moment and just briefly discuss qualified immunity's important purposes. The court has long since recognized that qualified immunity operates to afford officers some flexibility to operate in gray areas of the law. Indeed, the Stute Court called the Fifth Amendment claim in that case precisely in the gray area created by Chavez. The Stute Court cannot be regarded as persuasive because qualified immunity operates to afford officers in that area. If, the, if qualified immunity uh, affords any, any kind of protection to officers, it allows them to resolve open, difficult questions of constitutional law in good faith in compliance with the majority of the circuits. To hold otherwise would be to suggest that officers uh, should be held liable for the potential conduct of a future officer, and uh, they should also be held liable. They should have the Democles' sort of ruinous liability if they happen to choose the incorrect side of what may be a constitutional debate. Just to be clear, when is this not a gray area for someone in the defendant's shoes, in your view? Because they don't know at the time at which they act what's going to happen later. So they have to have actual knowledge knowledge that there's going to be a trial? Uh, no, Your Honor, I apologize. The law in the 14th Circuit could, be, could have been clearly established if the 14th Circuit had already held as much or uh, if the Supreme Court had held that this was a Fifth Amendment right. But the Supreme Court hasn't, the 14th Circuit hasn't, and the Supreme Court has held that absent a robust consensus of precedent, of persuasive authority, uh, the, the plaintiff has not met their burden under qualified immunity. And the court in Harlow said that insubstantial lawsuits should be dismissed at the motion to dismiss stage because forcing officers into discovery and into a trial uh, forces them to bear a heavy burden. Now, I realize that my time is about to expire, but I'd like to take a moment to step back from my colloquy to point out precisely what my friends would have this court do. My friends would have this court disregard a four to four circuit split with 16 courts on one side and four on the other and state that no reasonable officer could have concluded that this question was open. Indeed, my friends call the question open. Whatever the Fifth Amendment may But they say that there's a different question. That's the key question. So you're really talking on different paths. Well, Your Honor, respectfully, if you look at page seven of my friend's brief, they call the Fifth Amendment question in this case, the Fifth Amendment question that they rely upon, open. They say that it is a difficult question without controlling precedent. And it's difficult to see how a question can simultaneously be open, but nonetheless clearly established. Counsel, so even if, if this court decides, say this court decides that there is a constitutional violation, take me back to the officer in the officer's shoes. Now the officer knows that there's a violation um, at, say, a bail hearing. And now the officer knows that there's a violation if it happens at trial. But the officer at the time that they're acting still doesn't know how this information is going to be used. So when is the officer ever out of the gray area, given that whether they're in the gray area or not depends on what happens downstream, which they can't possibly know at the time that they're acting? Well, Your Honor, I, I would respectfully suggest that qualified immunity is agnostic about whether or not the officer knew or could have known uh, how the information was going to be used. As long as the right was clearly established, the officer isn't entitled to qualified immunity. Whatever the Fifth Amendment may prohibit after this case, there is no way to suggest that it, was, it clearly prohibited that. But I guess the problem is you phrase the, the, the analysis as uh, giving officers the leeway to operate or not operate in gray areas. And what my colleague is suggesting to you is a lot of what is happening that matters is out of this officer's control. I realize my time has expired, if I could just answer Please. the question. 
Your Honor, I understand that the distinction is a difficult one, but I would suggest that the, the, the qualified immunity analysis only cares about whether or not the right was clearly established. It doesn't care whether or not the officer, uh, the context in which the officer was operating. It cares about the framing of the right. I don't think that the court could read Saussure to hold anything other than it is the right at question and not the conduct. If there are no further questions, we'd ask you to affirm. Thank you. Madam Chief Judge, and may it please the court, we just have two quick points in rebuttal. First, there appears to be a dispute over the actual facts of the hearing, and as Judge Moore has correctly observed, the only hearing mentioned in the record at three is that hearing on the 14th, which indeed was adversarial, and while there's a mention of probable cause, there's nothing to indicate there was any pre-arrest hearing at issue here. And I would also like to direct this court's attention in light of the conversation of the right versus privilege distinction. Um, some law about the privilege against self-incrimination can be illuminating on the scope of the right. Specifically, in the context of grants of statutory immunity, as were at issue, for instance, in Castigar, there an individual could use their privilege in other settings, civil settings, um, against self-incrimination. And courts deemed that it was acceptable that uh, the government could institute a statute overriding that privilege if and only if they provided an immunity that was coextensive with the right to have them not used in a criminal case. And in describing that privilege which, or that immunity which is coextensive with the right, they described it as such. It prohibits prosecutorial authorities from using the compelled testimony in any respect Therefore, it ensures that it will not lead to the infliction of criminal penalties. Counselor, could I just clarify something that you said? So um, the, uh, the uh, question the question that was given to this court was whether the Fifth Amendment is violated when statements are used at a probable cause hearing but not at a criminal trial. And just to be clear, it is your position that the probable cause hearing that's referred to in that question is the preliminary hearing that happened on the 14th of April. Yes, Your Honor, based on the fact that that was the only hearing actually mentioned, and based on general sources like Wade LaFarre's criminal procedure treatise that says while states may call them by many different names, pre-trial hearings, preliminary hearings, probable cause hearings mentioned. So just if I could ask, on page three of the record, um, on the, in the top of the first paragraph, in the middle of the first paragraph, on April 3rd, formal charges were filed and an arrest warrant was issued for Herrick. The only evidence supporting probable cause was Herrick's statement from the interview with Bouch. You're saying that was not a probable cause hearing, or at least is not the probable cause hearing that's at issue today? Yes, Your Honor. It's the one on the 14th that you contend was at issue? Yes, Your Honor, because it was the only hearing explicitly mentioned. I, I do see that there's room and ambiguity for that, but that is our position. And there is basis for finding that probable cause hearings mean preliminary hearings, and that those terms are often used interchangeably. Um, I see that my time is about to expire, so just quickly. In describing an immunity that is coextensive with the right, the court in Castigar said it prohibits prosecutorial authorities from using the compelled testimony in any respect, ensuring that it will not lead to the infliction of criminal penalties. Now, use in these pretrial hearings, yes, it does not adjudicate ultimate guilt or the actual penalties, but it is certainly a step leading to them. And for these reasons, this court, we respectfully request that this court fully re reverse the lower court below. Thank you. Thank you. Is there any further rebuttal, or is that your team's rebuttal? Thank you. The court will take a brief recess.
Please be seated. This was a wonderful moot court. We all thought very highly of all of the council. And uh, each of us is going to give a few comments, and then I'm going to announce some final results. Judge Diaz, would you like to Certainly. go first? Oh, you guys are kind of spread out, so it's a little bit difficult. I'll just make some general comments about the arguments. I thought they were fantastic across the board. Um, you know, when we sit and hear uh, lawyers argue cases, we come into this hopefully very well prepared, but we expect the lawyers to be even better prepared, and you all did not uh, disappoint in that regard. You answered questions thoughtfully, carefully, uh, fluently. The only thing that I would suggest is uh, sometimes when you get up there, you tend, some folks tend to speak a little bit too quickly. Um, some of you did that. We want to hear what you have to say, and in order to do that, it's important to sort of take a step back and compose yourself and think carefully about, first of all, what you're saying and give the judges an opportunity to consider what it is that you're saying. You all did a fantastic job of answering questions. And, you know, we unfortunately sometimes get lawyers in court who think that they're up there to give a speech. They just want to get through their 20 minutes or 15 minutes of fame or infamy and then move on. Uh, but that's not the purpose of an argument. When it's done correctly, it is a conversation between the court and the lawyers, and we had that with you all, because uh, even though you were prepared to give your argument, uh, whenever one of us had a question to, uh, to ask, uh, you stopped and you directly answered the question. And then, more importantly, then you transitioned to the, the focus of your arguments. And all four of you did that, did that very well. Um, um, the, you know, we, as I said, we rely on the lawyers to, to help us move the case along to uh, come to a resolution. And when it's done correctly, it's actually a conversation between the lawyers and the court. And I think that's what we had here. We, we, you all were appropriately respectful of our views. You understood that we had important questions to ask and you were responsive to those inquiries. And certainly, uh, any one of us would be proud to have you all appear as counsel in our courtrooms. We say that often. Uh, I, I do at moot courts because by the time we get to a final argument in a moot court, it's clear to me that the lawyers are very well prepared. You would be surprised that that's not often the case in oral argument. Uh, uh, generally, lawyers try to do their very best, but it's often a bit uneven. Uh, that was not the case here. Each of the advocates here today acquitted themselves uh, in a, in a, uh, very, very well, and you should be very proud of what you did today, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to have heard you, so thank you. In the game of which of these things is not like the other, I think it's clear to everyone now that I'm it. I am not an Article Three judge. I'm the fake Article Three judge up here for the day, and uh, I, there's nothing that I can do here except to echo um, and reinforce all the wonderful feedback that you're getting from Article, real Article Three judges. Um, but I do want to say, um, as, as someone who knows all of you, Catherine, Chris, Kendall, and Scott, this was an amazing argument, and you should all be enormously proud of yourselves. It was an honor to get to um, sit up here and, and be a judge for a day and, and to hear all of your arguments. I echo everything that Judge Diaz said about how um, responsive you were, 
while also um, remembering to advocate for your client and bringing us back around to the points that you wanted to be sure to make. Um, so you are answering our questions and also advocating vigorously for your client. All of you did that. All of you should be enormously proud of these briefs and enormously proud of the, of the performance that you gave at oral argument. And I, for one, am incredibly proud of our institution and you as representatives of it today. So. The thing that I have now is yet more appreciation for what judges do because this is an impossible thing to decide and um, I just feel privileged to have been part of it today. So thank you for that. And I echo what my colleagues have said. I think all of you did an excellent job. Uh, you all grappled with our questions and were firm in your answers but uh, continued to engage with us and to uh, move your case forward uh, in, in excellent ways. You were familiar with the cases that the Supreme Court and that the lower courts had decided and you were able to um, address probing questions very well. I think one of the things that we noticed um, that came out in the oral argument and is also true in the briefs is that there are two different views of the record in this case and, and the, the two briefs are saying that the preliminary hearing happened at different times and are, um, uh, you know, the, the record mentioned a, a uh, preliminary hearing on April 14th. And that was an interesting exchange to have to um, deal with in terms of when was the preliminary hearing and what does that mean for this case. Um, and then uh, on the one hand, there was a, a good, strong, firm uh, position that Ms. Burchard was taking. And on the other hand, uh, when Ms. Collins came up uh, for rebuttal, she said that her view was um, the view that I was pushing um, as, the, as the judge here. And it, it's an interesting question how you deal with the judge's focus on something um, and uh, obviously in the in the long run you want to be persuasive to the to the judge uh, and on a panel of three make sure that all three judges understand what your position is um, but I echo Judge Diaz's comments about the performance of the four of you compared to lawyers that we see day in and day out we see some first-rate lawyers and we see some middle-of-the-road lawyers and we see some poor lawyers and you all will be first-rate lawyers you already are excellent at, at what you're doing and uh, I hope that all four of you will think about a career in litigation and in advocacy because you really did make a persuasive case for uh, each of your positions um, it's a difficult job that we have in a moot court in that we're not deciding the actual case we're not deciding how we think the case should be resolved on the merits of the case, but rather we're evaluating uh, whatever the criteria are that we were told by the uh, Moot Court Board. And here the criteria are 50% on the briefs, 50% on the oral argument for the overall winning team, uh, and then to pick the best advocate um, at this particular event. Um, again, not, not because of the um, merits of the underlying position, but because of the advocacy skills. So in terms of the best oral advocate tonight, 
um, we uh, would um, award uh, Scott Harmon Heath the award as best advocate, and I want to give you. And it was a close decision, but judges have to decide. We cannot uh, forestall this. We decided that the appellants would win the overall uh, award as the best overall position. So congratulations to the appellants. And we, we all thank uh, the University of Virginia Law School for the excellent uh, preparation that it is providing to its students. And thank you for the opportunity to participate in this moot court event. Congratulations to all four of you. Thank you. Court is adjourned. <laughs>